0: Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. Christina Farr is joining us again today. She was on one of our earlier episodes, and she is based in the Bay Area. She is a journalist who specializes in health and technology, and she really has fingers on some of the pulses that are the most important to probably one of the fastest-growing sectors in technology as a whole um, she's just shifted gear she's now with fast company uh, which is a really really interesting and um, worth reading digital magazine and she also received a great award at the end of last year she was named the digital health reporter of the year by rock health so christina welcome back and congratulations
1: thanks so much for having me on again
0: so a lot has changed a lot has evolved since you and i last had a chance to speak you are really active you're you you publish all the time you're very active on Twitter you're constantly putting up breaking news pieces but also kind of thoughtful questions ideas concepts this sort of thing you're you're obviously very engaged with all of this so uh, let's take us really high up take us really really high up and just give us a sense of kind of what the, what does the field look like right now where are things in the world of digital health and digital technology
1: um well I mean today has been a big day um I I I'm sure you've heard of a company called Theranos um yes. blood testing startup with a 10 billion dollar valuation.
0: And, That's um, billion as in B.
1: Yeah it's huge. It's huge. So this this is a private company um a startup out of Silicon Valley and and it kind of burst onto the scene a few years ago um for its it's uh, innovative technology that could Perform hundreds of blood tests with a mere drop of blood from your finger, rather than um, a, a whole kind of venous blood draw. And uh, it's it's sort of in the last like I would say six months, it's it's sort of come to light that um, this company hasn't been really doing everything that it, that it says it is. And um, you know, first there was an FDA investigation, and and uh, today or last night even um, the CMS sent. A letter to Theranos calling out some serious deficiencies with its lab, and uh, basically said, "You got you got ten days to fix this, or we're shutting you down." Um, so that that's kind of the big story of the week that everybody's talking about.
0: Now, we talked the last time in 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 some detail around the issue of hype in this intersection of healthcare and digital technology. This seems like this issue with Theranos. Obviously, it's it's in the Wall Street Journal. It's really every every major. News outlets reporting on it. It's it's on Twitter, et cetera. Is this the biggest sort of bubble to burst within this realm of digital health and digital technology?
1: I would say so. I mean, Theranos builds itself as a health technology company, although I wouldn't really put it in the digital health category. Mm -hmm. Um, But these kind of these descriptions are all very murky at the moment. Um, But I would say that you know when this company uh, first announced what it was doing. A lot of the technology press kind of fawned over um, over it and also kind of, you know, just jumped on the, the sort of very compelling narrative of this young uh, 20-something CEO, Stanford dropout, who was going to be the next Steve Jobs. Right. And I think, you know, there were just, there wasn't enough attention being paid to, hey, these are, these are big claims. Where is the big proof? Um, and another sector sectors like consumer technology. I think I think you know that's not as big of a deal. Like if a if a company makes a big claim and, and a media outlet falls for it, um, but with with something like this, where it's lab tests that that make or break um, for many patients, you know this is this is more serious. And I think it was both Theranos and the press that um, that learned a big lesson in the past six months.
0: Do you think that we're going to see what we often see when something gets very, very big, very, very fast that there's, when there's the opportunity that there is a backlash and sort of the knives come out in a way?
1: Well, I, I, um, did a story recently in which I, I kind of suggested that I think, um, a lot of other health tech companies now will face what I call a burden of proof, Mm -hmm. Um, meaning that like, rather than just kind of coming out and saying, you know, we're great, we're doing this innovative thing that's going to change the world. I think, um, you know, investors and and the sort of smart media will be saying, okay, well, show us the evidence. Like I'd like, you know, where's the peer reviewed literature. Um, And I've, I've recently, you know, been responding to startups that have these big claims with, you know, just show me some evidence and like nine times out of 10, I don't ever hear back. Um, so I think, I think that's kind of the shift that we're going to see in, in health tech is the companies that can show the real clinical evidence are going to be the ones that kind of rise above and, and those that are, you know, more claims and, and kind of fancy marketing than anything else are, are probably going to, you know, either be exposed like Theranos or just kind of, um, not really make a big a big splash
0: it's funny that you say that because you we would i think probably have hoped that that burden of proof would have existed before you know theranos wh- whichever other company x that we're going to use as an example became you know the subject of book chapters i mean it's been it's been trumpeted from the rooftops that you know where the stakes are this high and you know it's one of those things where it's, it's a little bit different. I mean, it's not a handheld device that someone's going to use to watch a movie. I mean, you're going to be talking about getting people hard data about their physiologic status, about, you know, the condition that they may be dealing with. Um, it, it's, it's a different sport and it, it's, it's essential. I think that that sort of safeguard is in place. Do you think when you talk with colleagues, when you talk with people who are on the side on the on the journalistic side, is there a sense that hey, we, we really are going to just have to it's on us now. We have to be the ones to peel back many, many layers before we put people on the cover?
1: Yeah, you know um my theory, and actually this is you know a personal experience I've had as well, is the press kind of has operates especially the traditional press tends to operate in like a bureau. Uh, mentality. So you have like healthcare reporters and then you have tech reporters. And if you've got a health tech story, um, that can often be a little bit of a mess because, you know, who's going to cover it? And wow. if it is the tech yeah. team, which is what happened with Theranos, it was like a lot of tech reporters that were writing about this company, then they don't necessarily know the right questions to us. Like they don't routinely interact with federal regulators. They don't, you know, know what CLIA is. Um, and a lot of the the sort of rules around lab tests. And, and so, you know, this is, I think this has been the problem, um, the sort of segregation of bureaus. And That's I think
0: fascinating, yeah, that you have yeah. to have crosstalk. If you're in a siloed bureau, you're not going to understand the nuance of health technology. You're going to understand tech or health.
1: Exactly. And a lot of the healthcare reporters that I interacted with prior to the wall street journals expose, series, um, you know, knew that Theranos was more hype than, than, um, reality. And they didn't really cover the story. They didn't pursue the story because in the, to them, it's like everybody in our industry knows this. So why bother writing it? Um, and for the tech, the tech folks, this, this was kind of like, you know, the next big thing, the next Apple. Um, and, and I think that that's kind of the problem right there. We, I think we need to figure out a way for, people who are knowledgeable in both health and tech to um, carve out their own beats. And like I probably shouldn't say this, but I would love to have a little bit more competition.
0: Sure. No, that's – I mean that's a fair point. There aren't many people out there that are doing what you're doing, which is why I ask you to come on the podcast. It's (laughs) funny that you say that, you know, this issue of the next Apple. I was a sports writer when I was in college. And it was always, you know, we did, I was at UCLA. So there was lots of basketball, right? So we're always talking about UCLA basketball and just basketball as a whole. And it was always the next Jordan. And you're always crowning people. The next Jordan. There was a player. I remember at USC, whose name was Harold minor and his nickname was baby Jordan. I mean, imagine <laughs> the pressure that comes with being a college student. Whose nickname is baby Jordan. And you know, the guy, there's no way to live up to that sort of uh hype and that sort of labeling it, there's going to need to be some sort of restraint because it's fun to do that. It's easy to do that, and it you know it starts conversation, it draws clicks, it draws attention. Do you think that there's going to be a skill set to develop where people can say, "Look, we've got to demonstrate uh, that level of restraint."
1: Yeah, and you know I think to some extent, Theranos kind of played into that yeah. narrative. Like you know, and and maybe Elizabeth Holmes just happens to wear black turtlenecks every day. Um, but it seemed, you know, that she was sort of really, you know, working this kind of a Steve Jobs comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they definitely played on that narrative. And the press loves to tell good stories. It's, yes. Everybody wants to know who the next Apple, the next Steve Jobs is going to be. Um, and I and if you can get kind of wrapped up in that, then then you forget to ask some of the kind of more difficult questions that we should We should have been focused on from the beginning,
0: so then for the consumer, when the next story starts to break and the uh, some entity is being you know named the next apple or the next whatever it may be, what should the cons- what are the questions that the consumer should be asking, and what should they be looking to your you know when you're writing something and you're published what what are the things that they need to say before I get really excited and you know download this Time magazine article and read the whole thing. Where, where, where do they need to look? What are the sort of the one, two, three that they can say, this is garbage or, Hey, this is legit. And let's see where it goes.
1: Well, I mean, I feel like it should be the job of the press to, Mm -hmm. you know, to expose things one way or another. One of the tests that I've been doing recently is, um, I've, I've been looking at who's invested in the company, like who's sitting on the board. And if there isn't anyone in healthcare, like in either of those capacities, like, then that's usually a sign that um, this isn't really, you know, they haven't managed to convince those people like there's something missing. Um, That's a
0: fascinating litmus test. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I think it's a good one. And then the other is like, where's the proof? Where's the evidence? And Mm -hmm. um, we never really saw anything from Theranos because they maintain that they had this intellectual property. Um, But, you know that that is not like sufficient. You can't just say we we can't we're doing something innovative that's going to change the world, but we can't show you any evidence.
0: <laughs> so um. that's going to be a red flag from now on, right? We have the greatest thing in the world, but we can't show it to you yet.
1: Yeah, um, I think that's a good one. Um, and it, you know, sometimes it doesn't mean that these companies are bad. Like I recently did a big feature on a a startup called Oscar Health. I, I don't know if you've um, heard of them, but it's a it's a new health insurance company. Um, they're kind of known for their like super cheeky ads on the subway and, <laughs> and the millennial appeal. Um, uh, but they don't really have, uh, a lot of kind of invest investors who have a, have traditional healthcare experience. And there's a reason for that. Like it's very hard to make money in health insurance on the individual market. Um, an investor told me recently that it's like the same margins as the newspaper business. Um, but that company, I don't think you know, is ill-intentioned. It's just it's trying to do something in healthcare that um, that is, which is to rethink insurance that um, we need to be doing. Um, but they weren't. I mean, I guess this is kind of the opposing example. But they weren't really able to convince healthcare because the business model is so is so challenging.
0: Do you feel like most people that are, I, I know there aren't many people who are in that same, on that same corner that you're on with what your sort of reportage is, but I, I, do you feel like people are rooting for, for, for change? Are they rooting to see great innovation? Are they rooting to see these companies go forward or are they sort of hoping that it's a little more slow, a little more deliberate, a little more regimented?
1: Yeah. I mean, this is the big question. The question of the moment is like, do, you know, do we want to be, do, as, a, as an entrepreneur, do, do I want to be fixing the healthcare system, which is fundamentally broken? Or do I want to be doing something incremental that will make a more immediate impact and profiting from that? Um, and I think that's kind of the, the sort of divide right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I can kind of see the argument on, on both sides
0: so when when you see the winds blowing, which side do you think has got a little bit more weight?
1: Um, probably the incremental <laughs> change side
0: yeah.
1: i um, the majority of companies are in full onto that bracket uh, where we Where we don't really see much innovation is you know i i literally i can 't remember the last time I talked to a company that said they had a solution for either a provider or a patient, and that their business model was was actually geared to the provider or the patient versus like, hey, we have a solution for doctors, but we're really making money by selling to pharmaceutical companies. Mm-hmm. Um and that's, you know, to me that's that's sort of like very mixed um messages. Like on the one hand, you know, we say that we're we're for the doctor, but on the other, we're like selling ads um to pharma companies. And and like, you know, it's just I'd love to see kind of real healthcare solutions for doctors and and patients and, and not just kind of employers, pharma insurance.
0: It's tricky though, because, you know, it boils down to who's going to be able to give these companies money to go forward. And, and the, you know, the examples that you gave, particularly pharma, I mean, there's, that's where the money's going to live. So it's going to be hard to leverage. How do we improve the experience of the, you know, outpatient internal medicine doc Who's seeing his patients or her patients to be as fast, efficient as possible, versus the next flashy thing that is going to go viral on Twitter?
1: Yeah, I mean, you're right. That that is exactly where the money is, um, and that's I think why healthcare is so hard to change. You is, know these.
0: <laughs> yes. Like,
1: <laughs> so it's. I think it's easy to get disheartened, and then when you see things like um, the example of Theranos, which I think uh, the company had a lot of people excited. Mm -hmm. that, you know, this, this younger generation was going to rise up and and change things. And then you see this company kind of fall on its face and it, it, you know, it becomes more difficult to kind of believe that things can be different.
0: But do you think that that excitement, was it the product itself? Was it this thing that they can do with a drop of blood or was it the fact that this is some entity with process X that is going to at least cause a sea change in healthcare? You know what I mean? That, that something is going to be able to change dramatically and quickly, or was it the specific thing that they said they were able to do?
1: Well, I just I just chatted with someone who had done the finger stick, and he was like, you know what? It was kind of equally painful, if not more <laughs> painful than than the, the venous blood draw. So I don't I don't know if that that was the compelling thing. I think it was that they were saying, hey, like you know, we're actually going to publish our the prices of all of our tests. Yeah. Like we want to be transparent. Like you know, we're going to shake up this like multi billion dollar um, lab testing industry. We want we want to be regulated. We, you know, it was just all of these things that sounded like they were genuinely interested in doing something different, um, and and that they would be a threat to kind of the the status quo.
0: I think um, you've nailed it. I think that's exactly it. It's that idea that the status quo of healthcare, which obviously has been railed against for many decades, that here's this entity that's new and fresh and taking a modern approach, and you know, is staffed by millennials and and. That they're going to, yeah, they're going to go right at this, you know, monolith of, you know, laboratory testing. I don't think it was so much that the product that they had, it's that this is something that's going to cause waves and it's going to unsettle the norm.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, having reflected on this, like as a reporter, I get really excited about stuff like, oh my God, this company's in trouble and I get to kind of pursue this lead. But Mm -hmm. it is sad, like fundamentally sad, like that the sort of dream that was being sold last year and kind of made it to the cover of all of these flashy magazines like this is this is a wonderful dream to believe that things can change and you know it's there's almost like a sense in which the healthcare industry is feeling like almost a revelry around how it isn't really? and um, yeah it's like look at look at this kind of company that that fell and let's kind of point at all of their mistakes. And to some extent it's a good thing. Like we have to be educating patients about the risks. But there's also something more to that, I think. And, you know, maybe I'm gonna maybe I'm gonna look at this from another angle, which is it is sad.
0: (laughs) It is. I mean I think that like you say, there's this idea of change and hope and can this be done better? I mean, look, I'm a practicing physician. If we have a way that we can decrease laboratory turnaround time, you know, at least maintain the same level of accuracy, if not improve it, if we can, you know, improve patient compliance, because they may not be as afraid of it. These are all winning things. Um, and you'd like to see that sort of thing happen.
1: Yeah, and I if mean, it
0: doesn't work, then yeah, it's a bummer. But I think it's also just a good reminder that it doesn't mean that it can't happen. It just means that it's probably not going to be that first balloon that we see over the mountain. It's going to take a little while. That balloon's going to pop, but there'll be more coming up. You know what I mean?
1: You're you're like a doctor poet. The first <laughs> balloon that you see over the mountain, I love that. Um, and yeah, I, I you know I I have met some companies recently that are doing this kind of chip in a box or like lab in a box idea um, where they want to kind of run a blood sample over yeah. a, over a chip and then uh, you know get the results back very quickly. Um, so things like that are exciting because as you know, like the lab testing industry, it's so screwed up. Like why does LabCorp need a fleet of planes Mm -hmm. to rush samples around the country that get frequently lost? And there often are errors and that puts patients at risk. And then the the other thing that happens a lot is that doctors just forget to like relay the results. Mm. Um, like a shocking amount so like something needs to be done and uh maybe it'll be the second balloon
0: no that's the, and that's the thing so when you when when you think about what might be that next balloon or when you get pitch stories or people come to you with ideas is there are you seeing trends of what might be next of what the next sector that people are going to try and dig into and and may hopefully revolutionize for the better
1: well um you know there are there are definitely some big trends um one of them the other day i actually used telemedicine for the first time uh-huh. um, which you know a lot of people are like oh telemedicine and that's basically just like a way to virtually connect with the physician yes people say oh this is going to like massively alleviate healthcare costs and that i don't really buy because i i think a lot of costs come happen when patients end up in the ER. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that it's like a great way to deal with kind of this routine stuff like cults, flus. Hey, is this, um, you know, is this rash, something serious? Should I, you know, do something about it? And you can get these sort of more immediate responses um, from a doctor in five minutes and it's really affordable. Didn't cost me a thing. Um, and uh, I didn't have to go into my doctor and I didn't have to pay 30 bucks as part of a copay and I, because I stayed out of the doctor's office then that physician may have been able to invest like some of their time into like a trickier problem. Um, so I think, I think that's kind of an interesting new wave. I just don't know yet that we've fully captured the sort of potential for telemedicine.
0: I don't think we're anywhere close, but the interesting thing about it is that b- behind the scenes or just sort of slowly, slowly without much fanfare, I would say that most large health systems and medical groups are adapting it um, because I think everyone is anticipating that not only are people going to like it, but they're going to expect it. Um, they're so used to communication via Skype or, you know, whatever platform you're going to use where they can still be productive while they're doing it. They don't have to drive and wait and then drive to get back to the office that they can take a quick break, do what they need to do, have that meeting, have that conference call. I think that that same expectation is probably going to fall into healthcare. There are real challenges with that from the physician side Um, that, you know, with respect to being able to connect with your patient, being able to truly understand the issue, just simple issues around, around clarity. You know, if someone wants you to look at something, are you going to be able to see it well enough, you know, over a Wi-Fi signal where you can say, this is a thing, or this is not a thing. Um, But I I agree. I mean, I think that we're going to wake up and say, wait a minute. 30% Thirty percent of of patient physician visits are now being done digitally. This is you know it, it wasn't that long ago before we weren't doing it at all.
1: Yep, exactly. Um, no, it's huge, and you know you're right. There are all kinds of problems. Um, among them, kind of who's going to pay for this? Mm-hmm. Um, so you know reimbursement and and which insurance companies are going to are going to cover it, and right. which vendors will they cover? And like you know the other question is like are the best doctors going to bother with this because yep. they see enough patients and they make enough money. Um, so how do we ensure that like really high quality doctors are using telemedicine?
0: And then are you connecting with, you know, someone that's within your network so they have access to your record and they know your past medical history? I mean, it's, again, it's that sort of thing where it it, it looks great, it sounds great, but medicine is so complicated when you're trying to, you know, you know, execute shared decision making with a patient. There's so much complexity to it. I, I don't know the answer, but I I'm I'm again we talked about it in our last episode. I'm gonna stand on that corner of we this has to go slowly. We need I mean it's fine for it to to move forward, absolutely, but managing complex, you know, critical illness in this manner, it man alive is it challenging.
1: Totally. Um what and I'm curious, what do you think is kind of a big trend just from your perspective as a, as a physician, like what are you excited about?
0: I'll be honest. I am excited about the opportunity to connect with patients remotely. Um, Not necessarily personally, but I do think we can have opportunities to improve care for people, particularly in remote areas, people who may be in underserved areas. Um, I think that is a really nice opportunity to leverage a skill set you know you could take a residency department in family medicine and they could do a you know a digital clinic where they can access any part of the United States that can you know you can have someone act bring bring the bring the digital market to them and you can you know do all, all sorts of conversations and evaluations and make recommendations and then send prescriptions digitally follow up you know via email. I think that that sort of thing, you know, you could see a Robert Woods scholar sitting down and saying, I'm going to leverage this and I'm going to do something really unique with this. It's not sexy. I mean, working with underserved populations rarely is. But that to me is very, very provocative. Um, same thing goes with accessing care to people who are, you know, with unstable housing or who are homeless. Um, again, these are populations that don't have ready access to health care. You mentioned one of the biggest parts of health care expense is ER visits. And these are populations who, unfortunately, when they need care, they have to access it through the emergency department. If yeah. there's ways that you can divert that and still get them the help that they need before they're really really sick these are really really interesting opportunities um and they're things that are going to get teased out it's going to be you know it's going to be people coming up through the pipeline it's going to be residents it's going to be robert wood scholars it's going to be these people who have some time who want to try these things who are going to be creative it's going to be someone who's you know They say, look, if you go work in an underserved area for two years, your medical school debt will be forgiven by the federal government. That's the sort of thing that they would then hopefully be able to go and do.
1: Yeah, um, I could definitely see that. And, you know, there's nothing for, I think for the really routine stuff, there's absolutely nothing wrong with talking to a recent medical graduate. Um, They're more than capable of telling you whether, you know, you've got the flu or not. Um, And I also really like what you said about kind of looking at underserved populations one of the things that I'd love to see improve um, is just Wi Fi, broadband, internet access. And I think that, and also mobile phone access. And mm-hmm. I think that that's another thing we need to think about when we want to kind of expand telemedicine because you need to have like access to a Wi Fi connection and a, a computer or a mobile phone of some kind.
0: You're going to wake up in, in the midterm elections and you're going to be the health technology policy reporter. <laughs> because that's the next intersection, right? I mean, it, it's not going it, to, for these things to happen, this is going to come from Department of Health and Human Services. It's going to come from probably the federal government saying this is a priority and let's, let's fund it. Um, and it's going to be, you know, people like you that are going to bring it up and, and then probably pursue it. And then someone's going to talk about it and that's how it'll start.
1: Um, yeah. So it's, it's, you know, you just mentioned health tech policy. So one area that I'm looking at a lot is uh, genetic testing. And as you know, the, the cost of sequencing has come down. Um, a really interesting area is, is testing for BRCA1 and 2 genes. It's a mutation that is associated with a higher risk of breast and ovarian cancer. And, um, you know, this, this used to kind of be, this test was sort of the purview of a company called Myriad Genetics for a long time, and it used to cost thousands of dollars. And then we had a Supreme Court decision about not being able to patent genes and now this kind of field has been blown wide open, and we've got companies in Silicon Valley that are testing people for less than um two hundred and fifty bucks, which is huge because it means you know anyone who wanted to get a test wouldn't you wouldn't even need to get your insurance to reimburse you could just you could just get one um so that's kind of one part of this of this trend, but the other, which is what I'm looking into. Um, is that you know while we do have protections for for those who get these tests and and have positive results, so, so those people like you can't discriminate against them if you're an employer or an insur- health insurance company um, because of uh, an act called GINA and the Affordable Care Act. But there's a huge loophole, and I'm I'm kind of working on exposing that now, um, and that's uh, with life insurance, long-term care, and disability. So you can still, um, life insurance companies can and can do, say to women who have this gene mutation, that they are, will deny them life insurance point blank, even if um, the patient is perfectly healthy in their 30s and, you know, are, they're getting screenings every six months. Um, so very unlikely to have the, the cancer spread um, if, if, they, so if they do end up getting it. Um, so I think this is kind of this is the story that I'm working on, and, what, and it's just fascinating um, that now that we've entered into this era of very accessible genetic tests, you know, we've on, on the one hand we have you know it's so affordable and everyone can get one, and on the other hand, um, how are we going to change the legal system so that people are protected once they get these results? And what we don't want is a system that says get get these tests that you're in peril. Like yes, you might find out. Something about your genes that could potentially save you, but you know you won't get um, life insurance um, and you won't get long-term care or disability.
0: I-, I am so glad that you are raising up that flag, sort of sounding that horn, because you know there's a, another company that, again, it's it's been written about extensively, some of it by physicians, um, called 23andMe, and they are advertising on network television the sort of happy, you know sunny sky go forth going to get and and have get get all these different genetic tests done it is so much more complicated than that there is so much more at stake than that not that people shouldn't do it but you can't just go into it like you're walking into a grocery store i mean you have to have some semblance of expertise you have to understand the repercussions both intended and unintended like you just talked about and then you have to have some you know some structure around you to help you interpret the results and what needs to happen next
1: yeah i mean 23andMe, for a long time before they had the FDA come down on them, they did do BRCA1 and 2 testing. And this was direct-to-consumer. So there was no one calling up the, the patient before they got the test and saying, hey, if you get this test and it comes back positive, like you may never be able to get a life insurance policy, um, even if you are very proactive about your health and do absolutely the right thing. Um, and you know, so these women just don't know. I talked to someone this morning who got a positive result. She just got denied life insurance, and she said she would never have gotten the test had she known that this was a possibility because it's it's the most important thing for her is to be able to make sure that she can provide for her family if the worst happened.
0: That's that's the – we talked about this the last time, right? This is the ultimate example of caveat emptor of buyer beware. Um, but if you don't know what you're walking into, they're going to they're gonna eat you alive, <laughs> Um, because again, this is a manifestation of capitalism. It's not a manifestation of, we're going to try to help people on a population, on a population level. Um, Yeah. I'm I'm cynical like that, but I don't think that's what they're trying to do.
1: Yes. And I, you know, I'd love to see some movement on this, um, in the coming months, but life insurance, the life insurance industry will fight this tooth and nail. Um, and they, and it took over uh, 12 years just to pass the law that we do have that says that People can't be discriminated against by health insurance companies and employers. Well, so if it took that long to wow. pass that law, um, you know, how much longer is it gonna take before we can address kind of the rest of, of, of these um, issues?
0: So I mean we've talked about some obviously really complex things. We've talked about some things that I think have probably disappointed a lot of people, maybe left people feeling frustrated, let down. Is there still a sense of optimism in the valley, so to speak? I mean, that's you know that's sort of the the hotbed of a lot of this stuff. Is there still a sense of optimism? Is there still a sense of we're going to still go out and try new things? We're going to still try and grow these businesses, grow these companies, or is there maybe more a sense of maybe this isn't the the hottest marketplace that we should try to develop?
1: No, there is definitely a sense of excitement, um, yeah. and I, I want people to walk away thinking that because we've seen just a massive amount of money here in Silicon Valley be poured into various um, areas of around digital health and health IT. I mean, there's so many things to do. Um, and there's a lot of companies that I'm really excited by. Like I think, um, you know, just as an example, Omada Health, like helping, has actually shown evidence, has, has had success with, um, with helping patients that have pre-diabetes, which I believe is one in three people in, in my uh, generation. Um, have pre-diabetes, putting them at very high risk for getting diabetes. And uh, they they have a system around kind of weight loss and healthy eating that has been very successful. Um, and it's it's very much based in, in technology. Um so that's just one company. you know another one, Grand Rounds has been great at delivering kind of virtual second opinions to patients who have you know serious or or rare diseases. Um, there's just, and and there's countless companies that I could point to. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, if you're interested, if you're interested in health tech, I would say the Valley is a great place to be. And, um, you know, there is excitement here for sure.
0: So then when these companies start to bubble up and we start to hear about them, the things we need to look at is where are they getting their funding from? Do they have a sound scientific basis of evidence? Do they have physicians, scientists, bioethicists perhaps sitting on their board of directors or helping direct the the goal of the company? Would you say that's a fair, a fair template for people to look at these companies at before they say, "Wow, this is just an awesome thing that I saw on BuzzFeed?"
1: <laughs> um, yeah, or you know if it's, a, if it's like a consumer wellnessy app, try it yourself and see yeah you get any value from it if it's like a more of a kind of mobile medical device then you know that's more serious And I would I would kind of talk to your doctor about it see if see if the company is FDA approved um which they should be um so you know it's there's a it's a kind of the like wellness versus more kind of clinical stuff this kind of divide that we see um but you know there's plenty there's plenty to be excited about
0: when you when you look a few uh, another year or two down the line um is there any way to for you to have a sense of what's going to be the next the next thing that goes viral is there something that people are are pitching at you or something that you've heard about not to, i don't want to step on a story that you may have coming up but just a sense of what what slice of that you know health tech pie is going to be the one that that really starts to grow and people get excited about
1: um, so we're doing the next Apple thing.
0: <laughs> that's right. Yeah. See, um, look, I just thought, yeah. I mean, of course. Yeah.
1: You we always want to know to what's it. the
0: next hot thing. Yeah. You totally nailed me. Next You're right.
1: Um, okay. Next hot thing. Next hot thing.
0: The next big um, Apple. That's right. That's yeah, the next Apple.
1: The next Apple. Um, you know, I like, it's hard to say what is going to be the, the hot application that just like, you know, especially in the consumer space that just changes healthcare. I mean, mm-hmm. The one thing I would love is if someone could figure out the whole patient medical record thing. Yeah. Um, Google tried and failed and, you know, Microsoft looked at this at some point. But it's basically the idea that, like, you know, these electronic medical record systems are pretty terrible on the whole. Physicians hate them they don't really connect with each other. It's hard to send medical records around different health systems. So, you know, what if patients had much more control over their medical record? What if it was them that that was kind of adding a lot of the data that they generate? Like, what about the data from their heart rate monitor or their Fitbit? Like, you know, is that worth including? And um, I'd love to see kind of patients take more control over their medical record, have access to it and be responsible for it because that's that seems like the easiest way that we can kind of um, really you know move beyond this kind of lack of interoperability Mm -hmm. issue that we've and meaning kind of sharing medical records problem that that we've had everyone
0: with an interest in healthcare has skin in that game there's no question i remember one time i went on a fishing trip when i was a little kid and the and the the fishing line inside the reel got totally tangled up and knotted up so when we Unscrewed the reel and opened it. It was just this big mass of of fishing line, just coiled and twisted and and, and bent in every millions of different directions. That's unspooling the health IT issue. <laughs> it's worth yeah. doing. It's worth doing. You can't throw it away, but it happened so quickly. Uh, so much money was poured into it so fast. Everyone adopted all these different platforms. Like you say, there is very little, if no, interoperability. But it's totally worth it. Um, the, the power of being able to access someone's medical records when, especially when they're ill or when they're meeting with you for the first time or when they no, have a specific question, wrong. it's essential. Like that
1: happens all the time. Like, yeah. you know, patients should be going into their medical records and saying, hey, you know, this says hypo when it should say hyper. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that happens. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think if patients had a- actual access to these medical records, there's a lot of things that they would be able to rectify that could. You know, really save them one day. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a lot of data that patients are generating on their own that should absolutely be included um, within these medical records. Um, so, you know, it's it's I, I'm hoping that patients will be more empowered in the future.
0: I think that that's definitely coming. I think that there are lots of very powerful, thoughtful, and uh, considered patient advocates out there with very well. Well spoken, well reasoned cases for why that needs to be. And, you know, the open charts movement, I think is only going to continue to grow. Um, we've covered a ton of ground and we've left much ground as yet unturned. Um, this has been a, an amazing conversation. I always wrap up with you thinking, Oh my God, there's all these other things we still have to talk about, but you'll come back and we'll, we'll dive into the next big controversial subject because it's probably not all that far away. Um, in the meantime, the, the the work that you're putting out, all the stuff that you're writing, you're putting out online, where do we find you?
1: Oh, yeah. Find me on Twitter. I'm, I'm a huge fan. I'm at Chrissy, or, um, And if you are working on the next great um, patient application, email me. I'm at C-F-A-R-R at fastcompany.com.
0: That's fantastic. It's a, You have a great Twitter feed. There's lots of fun stuff, lots of content that you put out, but also you leverage other really unique, germane, fun, clever topics that uh, people may not otherwise come across. So it's definitely uh, a fun follow on Twitter.
1: Well, I do retweet you sometimes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> much appreciated. Much appreciated. Well, listen, thank you so much. Uh, we'll have you back whenever whenever things continue to evolve. We're going to reach out to you to help help us make a little bit of sense of it.
1: Great, thanks, thanks for having me on again. I'm, I'm excited about the next one.
0: Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website explorethespaceshow.com and please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS show and you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to Mark at explorethespaceshow.com.